God's purposes in suffering. What is God doing when he brings trials and suffering into our lives? And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we come to you and we thank you that you have made a way that we sinners can be made right with you. We thank you you've met that deepest need. We thank you, Father, for tonight and for the opportunity we have to open up your word to hear from you. Father, again, I ask that you would grant us hearts of faith, hearts that respond to your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you remember last week, we kind of thought about where does suffering fit into the big plan of God? And we made a few, there were a few major points we made. First, we said that suffering is ultimately the result of sin. Suffering is God's judgment on a rebellious human beings. Now, we had to be, we have to be cautious here. I am not trying to say that every form of suffering in your life, every particular suffering in your life, is the consequence of some particular action you've committed, some particular sin you've committed. But we are saying that all the brokenness in this world is a result of sin in a general sense. We also considered how God stepped into our broken world in the person of Jesus Christ, and he has provided an answer for our rebellious hearts, for our sin. And the great point that we made last week is that our greatest need is not to be relieved of temporal suffering. Temporal suffering is not what we need to be rescued from most, but our greatest need is to be restored in a relationship with God. And God's made a way. That's That's the point we made last week. Now, it's crucial, absolutely vital that we lay that foundation. Because if we don't lay that foundation, it's going to be very difficult for us to accept a God who is good and loving and merciful and kind and who sends suffering into our lives. So we have to lay that foundation. God has met our most fundamental need. And in one sense, everything else is icing on the cake. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, every, anything else you get is, is just God's goodness, God's kindness um, in your life. But even the suffering is God's kindness in your life, and that's what we want to think about tonight. Now, this evening, I want us to ask, I want us to start by asking the following question. Why is it that we who've been forgiven, forgiven of our sins, made right with God, why is it that we still experience suffering? And that's a good question, right? If suffering is the result of sin, but God has corrected the problem and he's forgiven our sins, why do we suffer? Why are there trials, difficulties in our life? Here's another question. Does suffering call into question this salvation? Another way to put it is, does suffering undermine the reality of this salvation? And I hope that what we find out tonight is no, far from it, that God actually uses suffering in our lives to make our hope more certain, hope of salvation more certain than without suffering. And so tonight, major point we're trying to make tonight is suffering proves and sustains the genuineness of our faith. You see the title there, suffering preserves true faith, and that's what we want to think about. Now, before we get there, I'm going to have a little bit of an extended introduction. I want us to think about suffering and what it causes us to do. Suffering causes us 
to make a value judgment. When you suffer, you make, you immediately begin making a cost-benefit analysis. You're weighing the suffering. And the result of that analysis, that cost-benefit analysis, will cause you to go in one direction or another. And so you have it there in your notes. There's two different ways you can come at suffering. And the first is to view it as an obstacle. Suffering is an obstacle. Trials, difficulties, they're an obstruction. They're an impediment in me getting what I want most out of life. They're there. It's an obstacle on the path. There's nothing like pain and suffering to get a person self-focused. Have you ever noticed that in your life? Suffering can get you, I mean, just to stub your big toe. All of a sudden, you're really concerned about yourself and about, you know, the, the pain just causes you to focus in on your own need. And when we become self-focused, we self-destruct because we were not created to be self-focused. We become frustrated. We become angry. We become bitter. We become anxious. We're stressed out. We're fearful. We give in to self-pity. There's a lot of different ways that we, directions that we go in, but ultimately we lose hope. We despair. We get what I like to call spiritual tunnel vision. Tunnel vision is when you lose your peripheral vision. People under high amounts of stress have reported experiencing tunnel vision. Police officers in a firefight. They're so stressed that they'll report afterwards, everything went blank, everything went black, and all I could see was the person firing at me. That's all I could focus on. Navy pilots, first landing on aircraft carriers, have experienced tunnel vision. They report afterwards that they never heard the voice blaring in their headset, pull up, pull up, pull up, you're coming in too low. They report never seeing the, the, the large red blinking light, red light flashing in front of them, telling them that they're too low. They're coming in too low. And the next thing you know, they smash the back of that aircraft carrier. And thankfully, the ejection seat works and they go skidding across the platform and survive. Hopefully, they're on a good day. Which is why they could report this. This happens to us physiologically but it can also happen to us spiritually. There's something about being under pressure that causes us to focus narrowly on our trials. Our field of vision narrows. It constricts our thinking, and it causes us to focus narrowly and often on the wrong thing, ourselves. Ourselves. And this, of course, can have devastating consequences both for ourselves and for those around. We lose sight of the big picture. Last week we were talking about the big picture. We lose sight of the big picture. We lose sight of the fact that Jesus died for us. And we become obsessed with our need. Now, just so you understand, so I'm just being clear, I'm not talking about getting medical attention, going on vacation, meeting the the particular needs you have as a human being. I'm talking about something much greater than this, a, a despair a self-centeredness that destroys. So that's one way. We can do this cost-benefit analysis and we can go, suffering, that's bad. I don't want it. It's a hindrance. It's an obstacle. Get it out of here. But the other way to approach suffering is to view it not as an obstacle, but as a pathway. A pathway. So you have it there in your notes. 
to see my suffering as a necessary path that leads to a valued objective. It may be a rugged path, it may be a difficult path, but it's a pathway nonetheless. I like to say this, I like to say people, human beings, they don't mind suffering. Human, human beings don't mind pain, they don't mind hardship, they don't mind difficulty, they don't mind trials. You're like, what? As long as the end goal is considered worthwhile. You know, you'll see it. People will line up on a sidewalk outside of a store and spend all night on that sidewalk. Why? So they can be the first one to purchase and enjoy some kind of electronic gadget. You know, some new iPhone or something. I like mountains. You like mountains? I love mountains. I used to love hiking, climbing mountains. I like to read stories about mountaineers climbing the big mountains of the world, the Himalayas, the expeditions. Think about Mount Everest. Every year, hundreds of people go to Mount Everest and they seek to climb the mountain. They want to stand on top of the world, even if it's just for a few minutes. And these individuals, most of them, will spend sixty dollars to $100,000 just for a spot on the team. They're going to have to train, 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 train to be in physical, top physical fitness. And then they fly to Kathmandu. They do a little hop, jump, I think it's Skardu, or closest village, and then they start hiking in to base camp. Several day trek, difficult trek. They get to base camp, and if you've ever seen base camp Mount Everest, it's just a pile of rocks. It's just rocks. All right, pitch your tent, you know, anywhere you want. In the next few weeks and months, you're going to be sleeping on rocks in a tent. Going potty, you know, around, around the boulder, you know. You're already at high altitude. You're at 17,000 feet or so at base camp. Sorry. I'm just talking about the comforts of home here, okay? You're at 17,000 feet. You're already struggling to breathe. Soon you'll be hacking, possibly hacking up blood. You have possibility of frostbite. First obstacle you're going to meet on Mount Everest, Kumbu Icefall. Kumbu Icefall is this, this, this giant, this, 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 this debris field of ice. Ice boulders the size of houses that can just fall on you at any point. They, they, they don't give you any warning. They just go boom and you're dead. And see, you watch these people who climb and they're psyched. They're excited. They got a smile on their face, you know. Woohoo! Another night on the rocks. You know? So great. Why? Because they understand that the suffering that they're going through is a necessary means to a desired objective. Stand on the top of the world for a few minutes. And this tells us something. It tells us that we human beings really don't mind suffering all that much. We don't mind suffering. What do we struggle with? We struggle with pointless suffering. Meaningless suffering. That we really wrestle with. We struggle with. But if there's this goal, if, if we understand what, what we're after, we, we don't mind it as much. The real problem is valuing what our suffering can accomplish. If you remember last week, I told you that's what I was struggling with when I was in ICU, paralyzed, couldn't move. I wasn't 
struggling so much with the question, why me? It was, so, it was more the question, to what end? To what purpose? What is me laying here on a bed in ICU? What is it doing? You know, I'm a good American. I want to accomplish something. What is this accomplishing? It's not that these climbers love frostbite and fatigue and discomfort. They're not masochistic. That's not what they are. You might think they are, <laughs> but they're not. They love the opportunity to possibly stand on the summit of Everest. They value that. And they understand that their suffering is purposeful and it's directly related to achieving that goal. And so they endure their misery with hope, we could say, with joy. And when they're exhausted, when they don't feel like they can take another step forward, what do they need? Well, they don't need three steps to a happier life. They don't need a new strategy. What do they need? They need to remember why they're there. They need to look up and look to the summit and go, this is why I'm here. They need to remember what the goal is. And they need to value that objective. And I'm convinced that we will not patiently endure our suffering with hope until we view it as a necessary means that leads to a desired end. It's really critical. I don't believe that you and I will be able to face the suffering that God brings into our lives with hope, with faith, until we understand it as a necessary means to a desired end. Yes, desired end. And for that to happen, we have to value God's incredible objective for us. And we also have to understand how our suffering contributes to that objective. What does it do in meeting that objective? And then in the midst of chaos, in the midst of the tears and the pressures of life and the suffering that comes at us, we can be strengthened to endure. We can be encouraged to go on. We can look up at the summit, as it were, and remember what it's all about. And we can fight tunnel vision in our lives. Think about Jesus. Think about how Jesus endured the cross. How did he patiently endure all the suffering that he faced going to the cross? All the humiliation. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve any of it. He could have felt sorry for himself. He could have seen his circumstances across as an obstacle to his well-being. But instead, the book of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. That is, he, he understood that the cross was a necessary means to a desired objective, a valued objective. And what was that objective? It was your salvation, my salvation. Many people inheriting eternal life. And Jesus saw that. He saw the potential. He saw the, the goal. And he endured the cross. So responding rightly to suffering is going to depend on two things. First, understanding the objective. Secondly, understanding how our suffering contributes to that valued objective. And so that's where we're going. Uh, that's what we're going to be thinking about tonight. So if you turn to First Peter, that was all introduction, but it was very important groundwork to lay to understand this concept. And now we're going to turn to First Peter. We're going to see how Peter teases this out at the beginning of his letter. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter is written to, it's a circular letter. It's written to multiple churches uh, in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. 
these believers that he's writing to seemingly are suffering. They're going through trials. He writes to them. We'll see in our passage, he speaks about their various trials. So they're, they're not necessarily all going through the same thing, but they're going through difficulties, suffering. And Peter writes to encourage them, to encourage their faith. And he, he, he does several things in the letter, but that's, uh, that's enough for our purposes tonight. So let's read. We're going to read verses 3 through 9. Verses 1 and 2 are simply introduction and greeting. Um, but we're going to be looking here at verses 3 through 9. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, that is, in this great salvation, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that, here's the purpose, whenever you see a so that, there's a purpose, the proof or genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now we're going to be looking here at verses 3 through 5 to begin with. It's fascinating how Peter begins. He's writing to suffering believers and he begins by giving praise to God. He begins by worshiping God. And this is so important. He's already fighting tunnel vision here. Lift up your head. Look at the greatness of our God. Now how would I begin a letter to suffering Christians? Well, I would be tempted to start the letter this way. Dear brothers and sisters, I'm so sorry that you're going through so many trials. I know it's been difficult, but you're going to get through it. You know, there's a little pep talk. But how does he begin? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not talk about trials. Let's not talk about suffering. Let's talk about the glory, the greatness of our God who has done what? Who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what we talked about last week. Hey, let's fight tunnel vision. Remember what God has done. He's met our greatest need. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. He's made us alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that. Paul focuses, Paul, Peter, forgive me, focuses our attention on what God has done in the past. Look back. Remember how God saved you, how he cause you to be born again, but also look to the future. Look at verse 4. You've been born again to a living hope. To what? To obtain an inheritance. That's out ahead, right? So he points to the back in the past. You've been born again. He points to the future to obtain an inheritance, which is what? Undefiled. I'm imperishable reserved in heaven. It's secure. He's pointing to a secure future. It's absolutely certain. It's preserved. It's protected by God. You realize, this is so encouraging. 
Do you realize that history is culminating in a day when Jesus Christ will come back and he's going to make everything right again? And Peter, in a sense, is saying, live with that expectation. Live with anticipation. Orient your life around this great salvation that's coming. Every day is a day closer. Every minute is a minute closer. Think with me a little bit. Just meditate a little bit about what the salvation is going to bring us. And I'm pulling here from the whole word of God and what it teaches us. Salvation is God banishing evil. Banishing evil. Fixing our broken selves. Fixing this broken world. Bringing justice. Rescuing us from every sinful tendency. Salvation is God giving us new transformed bodies. It's a physical reality. It's the redemption of our body. No more sickness. No more aging. No more deterioration. No more disability. No more death. Salvation speaks of a renewed creation. A renewed creation. A world that has been released from its bondage of corruption. From its brokenness. No more tornadoes. No more hurricanes. No more flooding. No more famine. Salvation is living in perfect harmony with God, perfect harmony with each other. It speaks of good and healthy relationships. You see, salvation, this ultimate salvation we're talking about, that's still future in some sense, is everything human beings long for deep down inside. It's everything we long for. No more suffering. No more tears. Corinthians, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even begin to conceive of the blessedness, the joy, the the wonder of what it will be like to live in this renewed creation with renewed bodies for all eternity in the presence of God. I think it can be helpful then to think of your life, in a sense, as a journey. You're heading in a direction. It's a journey that has a definite beginning, and it has a definite destination. Its beginning is our salvation in Christ. We've been born again to a living hope. The destination is the salvation we're talking about, this day when Jesus makes everything right again. It's still out ahead. It's our inheritance, right? It's reserved in heaven for us. But in the meantime, we're somewhere in between. We're not there yet. That's one of the answers. Why is there suffering in this world for believers? We talked about this last week. One of the reasons is we're not there yet. You see, we're on this journey. We're somewhere between there and there. We've been saved and yet we've not received and experienced the full benefits of our salvation. You you realize that this morning. We're saved, but we are not experiencing the full benefits of our salvation. We're climbing the mountain, but we haven't reached the summit. And God has a purpose in our suffering. I want to ask, I'm here in your notes, that point in your notes where it says, how do I know I'll reach the destination? That's a good question, isn't it? How do I know I'm going to make it? 
How do I know I'm going to get there? Verse 5 is very comforting. Here's a promise from God. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is, how are you going to make it? How is God, uh, how, how, are you, how do you know you're going to make it to that, to that day? God is going to protect you by his power. God's going to see to it that you make it to that day. What does that mean? It means that God is going to use his great power to ensure that those who are born again make it to the finish line. That everyone who's experienced new life in Jesus makes it to the finish line and experiences the glory of that future day. Now, how is God going to do that? Here's the question. How is God going to ensure that we make it to the end? Well, the passage tells us, verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through what? Through faith. So he tells us how he's going to go about that. That is, God is going to use his power in our lives in such a way that our faith is sustained all the way to the end. That's how God protects you. You realize that? God protects you, God protects me by sustaining our faith all the way to the end. What is faith? Let's talk a little bit about faith. Last year, Mr. Nuremberg did a whole series on faith. So if you want to go deeper here, watch all of last year's study on the life of faith. But he defined faith this way, and it's a good definition. I really like it because it's simple, it's practical. He defined it this way. Faith is listening to what God says. Faith is listening to what God says and then building your life upon it. Listening to what God says and building your life upon it. You, you hear there that faith is more than just believing something. It's more than just giving assent to certain particular facts. It's a whole life commitment to live for God, to trust God, even when it seems foolish to trust God. It's, it's building your life on the truths of the Word of God, what God has said. Now, we as Americans, we value self-dependence. The ability to make something of yourself. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You go out. You buy an acreage. You say, forget the power. I'm going to be off the grid. You build your own house. You plant a garden. You're going to eat from the garden. I'm self-sufficient. You know, and there's whole YouTube channels that are devoted to this sort of a life. But when you turn to God and to his word, you realize that God values dependence on himself. God values dependence on himself. He values being trusted. In the spiritual realm, there is no commodity as valuable as faith. In the spiritual realm, there's no commodity more valuable than faith. You can see in the Gospels. Jesus wasn't wowed by a whole lot in the Gospels. But there's one thing that caught his attention. There's one thing that he would stop at and go, whoa, look at that. And it was great faith. When someone exercised great faith in him, he'd stop everything and go, did you see that? Don't miss it. Side note, he was also kind of amazed by very little faith when there should be great faith. But, but, but. Wow, by this great faith. Jesus himself raised the question 
when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's an interesting question, isn't it? When I come back, Jesus is saying, will I find faith on the earth? He, the question isn't, when I come back, will there be wealth on the earth or a great civilization on the earth or great moral people on the earth? But the question is, will there be a people who trust me? Will there be a people who believe that what I, what I have spoken is true and built their life on it? God is asking you and me to live lives trusting in things we don't see over things we do see. It's part of what faith is. In your life and my life on this earth is an opportunity for us to demonstrate who it is that we truly believe. Have you thought about that? It's your opportunity, it's my opportunity to demonstrate what we believe, who we believe. Now those who stay on the path of faith to the end of their lives, they inherit eternal salvation. They, they inherit everything that God has promised to those who love him. Jesus says, the one who endures to the end, that person will be saved. The one who endures in their faith to the end, they will inherit everything that's promised. But we also want to be very, very clear here that to leave the path is to forfeit the prize. To reject Christ, to, to leave the path of faith is to forfeit the prize. So you might ask yourself again, how do I know I'm going to make it? How do I know I'm not going to leave the path? Well, again, verse 5, you're protected by the power of a God through faith. See, God will see to it that you endure in your faith. If you belong to him, he will see to it. And so we ask ourselves, how? How does he see to it? How does God use his power to sustain our faith? All the way to the end. And here's where we're going next. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but he sends trials into your life. He sends trials into my life. He sends suffering into your life in order to sustain faith so that you endure to the end. Look with me at verse 6 and verse 7. Verse 6 and verse 7. In this great salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see two purposes here, two great purposes. The first is suffering proves or demonstrates the genuineness of faith. But there's something else that's implied here because it doesn't just demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. It demonstrates the genuineness of our faith until that day, on that day. And so there's assumed here not just a demonstration of the genuineness of faith, but on the sustaining of that genuine, genuine faith until that day, that day of salvation. Making it really hard on the camera over there. Forgive me. Zooming out over there. But see, I really want to get to salvation, you know, because it sounds so glorious. So keep making it my way over there. First point there in your notes under the purpose of suffering on God's path is suffering proves the genuineness of our faith. You're with me? Everyone hanging on where we're at? 
Trials have a wonderful capacity to test whether or not we believe in God. They have a capacity to do that. Trials provide us with an opportunity to express faith, to demonstrate who we really trust. Trials can expose weakness, inadequacy, helplessness. Suffering can shine a spotlight on areas we don't trust God. You see, God is not just interested in superficial faith. God is interested in faith that's tested and found true. It's been tested and it's found to be genuine. How do you know your faith in Jesus Christ is real? That's a big question. I have a lot of young people come to me and ask that question. How do I know that my faith is genuine, that it's real? How do I know it's not just talk? Well, here's one way you know. It's not the only way, but here's one way you can know. Do you still trust in Jesus Christ when life goes off the rails? When life goes crazy? When suffering enters your life? When circumstances go against you, do you cling to Christ? Do you still trust him? You see, some people's faith is only temporary. We're told about that in the Gospels. It's insufficient. And when when affliction, when persecution arise, they fall away. They say, hey, this isn't what I signed up for. (laughs) I signed up for God to bless me in my life. And this is not what's happening. So forget you, God. I'll take care of my own life. I think I can do a better job of it. And they walk away. And And they demonstrate that their faith wasn't genuine. Suffering will test the genuineness of our faith. It will. And just to be crystal clear here, suffering does not make your faith genuine, nor does it make your faith a sham. Suffering exposes whether your faith is genuine or a sham. I was looking up on jewelers' websites And they were talking about, how do you test whether or not you have real gold or some fake, cheap, alternative, look-alike? And they say, well, one way to do it is to apply heat to the gold, what you think is gold. If it's fake gold, it will darken. It will go black. It might even start to smoke, they said. Yikes. But if it's real gold it will grow brighter. And the more heat you apply, the, the brighter it will shine. It's the same, same in the Christian life. Same for us. Suffering will test the genuineness of our faith. But number two point there, suffering not only proves the genuineness, tests it, but it sustains and deepens that genuine faith until the end. Note again that Peter doesn't just say trials comes into our life, verse 7, so that the genuineness of our faith might be made manifest. He doesn't just say that. Look very carefully again, verse 7. He says, so that the genuineness of our faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result 
in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying here is genuine faith, suffering tests genuine faith so that it is proved genuine on a particular day way out here. Which means it has to be sustained all the way until that day so that it can be proved to be genuine on that day. Are you with me? And so there's an implication here of sustaining our faith. I like to think of faith like a muscle. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. I know that firsthand. I uh, went paralyzed within 24 hours. I was laying on my back in ICU, couldn't move a muscle. It's scary how fast your muscles atrophy. I was a fairly fit person. You know, I had some muscles. And within days, I mean, you could just see the muscles atrophy. Just go. Loss of muscle mass so fast. Muscles need to be exercised in order to be maintained. Muscles need to be exercised in order to be maintained. And in the same way, faith needs to be exercised if it is to be maintained. Your faith and my faith must be exercised if it is to be maintained. If you don't exercise faith, it will atrophy. You will lose it. And faith needs to be maintained if you're going to inherit eternal salvation. And so God, in his perfect wisdom, sends trials into our lives in order to give our faith a workout. In order to exercise our faith. And this not only maintains our faith, as he sends greater trials into our life, it deepens our faith. It strengthens our faith. Do you see the logic here of our passage? I want you to see that logic. Verse 5, the logic is God protects us through faith. God protects us through faith. Verse 6 and 7, the logic is, faith is proved and sustained through trials. So God protects through faith. Faith is sustained through trials. And that leads to a conclusion. Trials are God's gracious gift to us. Trials are God's gracious gift to us. They're sent not to harm us, but to help us. They're God's means of proving and sustaining our faith until we come to our full inheritance on that great day. They're God's means of protecting you. I wonder if you realize that tonight. That the trial, the suffering that you may be going through right now is God's means of protecting you so that you will inherit eternal salvation. Exercising your faith sustaining your faith until you receive everything that he's promised you. I love this quote by J.H. Jowett, and I'm going to read it. He says, On that great day of unveiling, when all things are made clear, I shall discover what my trials have accomplished. It can be very hard as you look, as we look dimly, we, 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 we don't see clearly, what are my trials accomplishing? But there's a day coming where I think it's going to be clear to us what our trials have accomplished. He keeps going. He says, I shall perceive that they were all the time the instruments of a gracious ministry. All the time they were ministering to me. 
strengthening me even when I thought I was being impoverished. And the wonderful discovery will urge my soul into song and praise will break upon my lips. See, when Peter says that our faith will result in praise, glory, and honor, I believe he's describing the day when Jesus comes back and we stand before him and we marvel at the kaleidoscope of God's gracious activity in our lives. When it says we look back and we see what God's done and how he's accomplished it. I believe we're going to see how our trials have brought glory to God. How they strengthened God's people. How they were used to bring others to salvation. How it was used by God. Our sufferings were used by God to preserve our faith in a very dark world. And this will cause us to break out in praise and glory and honor of our great God. Well, let's... Let's wrap things up here. Our final point, main point there, suffering does not undermine our hope and joy in future salvation. That's why Peter can say in verse 6, in this we rejoice. The salvation, we rejoice. Even though we're, yes, I know we're suffering various trials, but we rejoice. In verse 8, he can say, we love him. We, we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter is saying is that the various trials do not undermine our hope and joy in Jesus Christ. Here's a question, though. Can they? Can suffering undermine our hope and salvation, our hope in God? Yes, they can. They can. If we succumb to tunnel vision, if we lose sight of the big picture, sure, we can lose our hope and joy. But what, Paul, what Peter is saying is that trials need not undermine our hope. It's not a given. But if actually we understand the purpose of our suffering, it can bolster our hope. It can strengthen our faith. It can deepen our love for God. You see, for the Christian... For the one who's been, who's been born again, being born again to a living hope is the fundamental reality that dominates his or hers outlook on life. If you've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the dominant reality that undergirds you. The new birth and hope of future salvation is a more fundamental reality than passing trials. Do you realize that? The fact that you've been saved and that you will experience the fullness of that salvation one day is a, is a greater reality than the passing trials. Why? Trials are fleeting, as he says in our passage. They're just for a little while. But the salvation is eternal. It's eternal. And even though we can't see Jesus, we haven't seen him, he says in verse 8. Yet we cling to him. We love him. This is our expression of faith. Though you don't see him. And I kind of wonder if Peter here in verse 8 is hinting a little bit at the fact that, yes, we don't see him physically. But I wonder if he's hinting also at the fact that sometimes trials keep us from even seeing him with the eyes of faith. Seeing him spiritually. Yet we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's strong language. That's hope-filled language. That's the language of faith. I, I think of that hymn, when darkness seems to hide Avails his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Sometimes we can't see. I rest on his unchanging grace. And every high and stormy gale my anchor holds, 
within the veil. You see, believers, our suffering does not undo us. I think this is one of the big points Peter's making here. We may be afflicted, but we're not crushed. We may be perplexed, but we're not in despair. We may be struck down, but we're not destroyed. Why? Because we love Jesus Christ. And we have a hope that one day we're going to see him again. And the suffering in this life only serves to deepen our hope and our trust in him. It only serves to sustain our faith in him. And so I wonder where you're at tonight. I guess the first question I should ask is, have you been born again to a living hope? Is that you? Is that a reality for you? Do you have a hope, an assurance that you belong to Jesus and that you are being protected by him, by his power? If you don't, Jesus Christ is offering himself to you tonight. Will you receive him? Will you receive him? Will you let go of trying to control your own life? Will you entrust your life to him? And embark on this great journey that leads to everlasting life. Believers, I turn to you. What is the dominant reality in your life right now? What is the fundamental reality that undergirds you, that stabilizes you in the midst of suffering? Is it the reality that you've been born again to a living hope? Is that the reality that undergirds you? Do you look forward to a future salvation? And do you see suffering as a necessary means of preserving your faith until you receive what has been promised? Can I exhort you, my friends? Trust God in the midst of your suffering. Trust him. Believe by faith that he has a purpose. You realize there are no unnecessary trials for the believer. There are no unnecessary trials for those who love him. Every one of them has a purpose. No matter how small, no matter how great. Allow your trials to drive you to God. See, purposeless suffering will lead to despair. If you don't see any purpose to your suffering, it's going to lead you to despair. But purposeful suffering leads to hope. Purposeful suffering leads to hope. And so I have there in your notes, this is a truth that you can confess by faith. Our glorious hope, my suffering, is part of God's path for me that leads to eternal glory. Can you say that tonight? My suffering is part of God's path that leads to eternal glory. By faith, we can say that if we believe what God has revealed here in 1 Peter. Let's close in prayer. And again, I'm just going to pause. It's good to pause. Just a little bit of quiet. You just even think about that last statement. Can you say that? By faith, 
If you can't say it, why can you not say it? What's hindering you from trusting in God tonight? Father, we thank you for these these truths. These deep, deep truths that teach us about your purpose in the difficult things in our lives. Your loving purposes. Help us to value the objective you have for us. Help us to value eternal life and help us to understand how trials sustain us until we inherit that life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.